I want to initially note here that I'm not a systematician and I don't approach this from a systematics perspective. Um, I've become convinced that all theology is, in a sense, uh, autobiography. We talk about the things we talk about in the way that we talk about them because of the books we've read, the experiences we've had, the teachers we've had, and uh, it's inescapable. So I'm not going to apologize for approaching this the way I do. I'm not going to apologize for using the very precise language that, that Joe Locomoto did yesterday. That's what he's supposed to do, and he's very good at it. Uh, that, that's not how I come at it. I'm probably a little messier, and, and uh, that's just what it is. But theology has always been done this way. Uh, we're talking about the authority of Scripture in 2010 here in St. Louis in a certain way that would not have been possible 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. That's, that's just the reality. Uh, books have been written. Uh, water has gone under the bridge. And context change. Luther, for example... Uh, wrote about what he did using the methods and resources he did because of where he lived, uh, the time in which he lived, what his background was, who his opponents were. He spent a lot of time, for example, talking about monks and monasteries. It's in the Lutheran confessions all over the place. But when was the last time you had any concerns about monks or monasteries in Bible study classes or sermons? I suspect that none of the study Bibles that were talked about yesterday have any footnotes regarding monks or monasteries. Luther dealt with issues in his context, and we deal with them in our way. So I'm here to talk about the authority of Scripture. And I'm coming at this uh, actually sort of because of my uh, interest and uh, area of, of work, which confronts immediately uh, the users of the Bible with a problem. Uh, I got into this sort of accidentally my last year of Greek at Concordia Ann Arbor, with Dr. Heckert. We uh, incorporated some textual criticism into the course, or he did. Uh, we took a field trip over to the Harlan Hatcher Library at the University of Michigan, the Graduate Library, saw P46, uh, manuscript of Paul from the year 200, and I thought, well, this is pretty cool stuff. You know, I could, I could kind of get into this. And uh, kept kind of digging away in my spare time, as it were, and, and uh, continued in that track. And you know, some 20 years later, that manuscript was a, a key part of my dissertation uh, and still working on it today. So, so just because of this one field trip, you know, you kind of, things happen. Another, uh, uh, you know, incident that affects how I come at this uh, took place when I was an STM student working in the library as a graduate, uh, whatever that is, reference desk person. And the library had in its archives, in its, in its holdings, a set of essays that were translations into English of writings of Herman Zasse. And these were on, you know, purple mimeograph, 1960s kind of paper. They were crumbling, hard to read. So just for archive purposes, to make sure they had the material, they were having secretaries type in the, the text. And then my job was to proofread, you know, make sure they typed it in right, get it formatted, then just print it off and put it back in the archives. Well, what struck me was, I knew who Zasa was, of course. We read Zasa in Dr. Nagel's class. We read it in systematics classes. All kinds of stuff on the church, on uh, 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 sacraments especially. Uh, very helpful material. But none of the material we read from Zasa was on the doctrine of Scripture. And none of the volumes of the We Confess series dealt with Scripture in the least from Zasa. And all these essays, or at least the bulk of them, were essays by Zasa on the doctrine of Scripture. 
And it kind of struck me. Why do we consider Zasso this uh, uh, authoritative, confessional, Lutheran theologian, but we've never heard him say anything about Scripture? Uh, buried in the archives of Concordia Seminary Library. Right? I'm trying to make this sound like Da Vinci Code, okay, in case you're wondering. You know. And, uh, you know, this, this uh, scandal, you know, our secret archives, and, you know, Tom Hanks with his plastic face shows up kind of thing. You know, it's... Um, well... That ended up being, uh, me being a little bit pragmatic at the time, I thought, heck, I'm doing all this work, I might as well get some credit for it. So I wrote an essay on Zas's uh, view of scripture, uh, which uh, Ron Forehand then put out in this, uh, well, we co-edited the book, and he put the essay in the back here. Um, and Ron was very wise. I got to say, I was kind of up in arms about how come nobody ever heard of Zasa, and, and I found it very helpful at the time. And, and Ron, being the wise professor, said, uh, um, you're, you're young, um, uh, do a historical survey. <laughs> so I, I did a historical survey of Sasa's writings and tracked through why he said what he did, when he did, uh, down through the 60s until his death in 1975. Um, but didn't really touch on the theology. So it left some, some unanswered questions. Zasa was approaching the issue in ways that I didn't get in my systematics classes. Uh, it wasn't found in CTCR documents. Um, I found it very helpful, and especially very helpful in resolving some of the issues that I was coming across in dealing with manuscripts. So what I'm going to attempt to do today is uh, bring these two together. Uh, where are we right now in terms of what we know about the Bible and how we got it? And how does this impact the way in which we view the authority of Scripture, um, uh, deal with the issue from an apologetic perspective and an and a, uh, adult confirmation perspective? and uh, come up with one that's both theologically valid, but also historically uh, valid. So my apologies to the systematicians. Uh, we'll leave it at that. So here's where I'm going, and uh, uh, we'll kind of touch on these as we uh, get through it. So, <clears throat> Sasa on Scripture has never been far from my thinking, and I must admit, uh, never far from the way that I approach the topic in the classroom. Uh, uh, even though it's not in CTCR documents, which is actually now apparently okay. Um, uh, uh, I found it, and, and here I'll start off with kind of a way that Sasa typically talked about this, and I'm just going to read this quote. I apologize for it being a little bit long. He says, Likewise, it has been recognized that corresponding to the doctrine of Christ's person, both the true divinity and the true humanity of the one Holy Scripture must be asserted. Everything in the scriptures is divine, and everything is human. Just as Christology, since the Council of Chalcedon, has, has to steer a course between the Scylla of Nestorianism and the Charybdis of Monophysitism, even so, the doctrine concerning the Holy Scripture must be careful not to suffer shipwreck on the cliffs of a rationalistic history of religion's understanding of the scripture and a supernaturalistic, docetic understanding of the scripture. Actually, Andy Bartelto was kind of surprised to use that same line yesterday uh, at the beginning. The Holy Scripture is God's word. The Holy Scripture is man's word. But the word of God and the word of man are not two Holy Scriptures. Perhaps someone might say the kernel in the Bible, which might be designated God's word. But they are one Holy Scripture. The selfsame one Holy Scripture is complete, unabridged word of God and complete, unabridged word of man. Not a mixture of the two not a synthesis which a person can again separate. 
Now, I found that helpful because we have manuscripts and a whole bunch of manuscripts that were made by people. <laughs> we have writings in which people talk about things that sometimes seem pretty mundane, and yet we consider these the Word of God, authoritative. Uh, and there are multiple ways to reconcile these, some of which I find unhelpful, especially given the current state of our knowledge about the New Testament, some of which are helpful, and that's what I want to get into today. Now, before I get into the actual argument, I just want to kind of make something clear. Uh, I want to clarify that I'm not questioning the authority of the scriptures. I'm not questioning their inspiration. I'm not questioning their normative nature or their function in the church. Uh, what I am attempting to do is to lay out an accounting for the authority of the scriptures that recognizes both their divine source and purpose and their human nature. Especially, again, in light of what we know about the New Testament text. So in the rite of ordination, candidates were asked, and I was asked flat out, first question, do you believe the canonical books of the Old and New Testaments to be the inspired word of God and the only infallible rule of faith and practice? To this I did, and still do today, answer yes. Right? We all did, or will. Now this question, of course, asks a great deal of the candidate. Do you consider the canonical scriptures of the Old New Testament to be the inspired word of God? Only infallible rule of faith and practice. That is to say, not only do you assert or agree with this doctrine, but will you conduct your life and your service in this place using this as the sole authority? That's a pretty big thing to ask, right? Is everything you're going to do bound to this? On the other hand, there's a lot that that doesn't say. For example, it asks only about the canonical books, but in good Lutheran fashion, never lists what those canonical books are. <laughs> if I could use a little an an uh, antidote, anecdote from my, uh, my own parish ministry, when I got to Lakewood, Ohio, Cleveland, uh, Ohio, um, you know, one of the first things you do is look at your church constitution to see what, you know, is kind of going on, and nobody pays attention to it anyway. But I, uh, you know, pulled it out, and the first article, right, first article states, we accept the canonical writings of the Old Testament to be the inspired word of God and the only source and norm of teaching and practice, whatever the phrase is. Notice what it said, we accept the canonical books of the Old Testament. What happened was when they translated the Constitution from Slovak into English in 1948, whatever, they sort of missed and knew. <laughs> you know, one, of those, one of those scribal errors, you know, haplography, I think you call it. And, uh, and of course, Article 1 is unalterable. So I went into, my, <laughs> went into the church council meeting and said, sorry, no more sermons on the New Testament. We're just stuck here with, you know. <laughs> we, we changed it and didn't tell the district. We just changed it. Anyway. Well, yeah, you, you kind of get the point here. Why didn't we list the canonical books? Why is it left open-ended? Interesting question. Uh, when I get off here, I get lose my spot. Right. Um, it doesn't either, neither does this assertion or this uh, question go into a great deal of detail about exactly how or why to use this inspired word of God. There are a lot of blanks to be filled in, and we fill them in in many different ways, actually. But I want to make clear that from the beginning that the confession of the scriptures as the infallible word of God given by the Spirit through the prophets and the apostles and the only source of norm for faith and life is not in question, not what I want to challenge uh, today. 
What I am challenging is the manner in which we describe the inspiration and authority of the scripture. And what I want to contend is that the way we describe this is neither specifically Christian, nor rooted in either Christ or his Holy Spirit, neither is this account plausible or persuasive in our present context and our knowledge of the development of the scriptures. And as a result, we have left our hearers, our congregations, the people of God, open to, uh, uh, well, to being uh, 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 vulnerable, I should say, to anti-Christian apologetics and argumentation. That is to say, by insisting on a certain way of talking about the authority of the scriptures, we have not described them, neither as they are, nor in a way that points to the solus Christus, Christ alone. So, my second point. In avoiding one error in talking about the scriptures, the error of ignoring the divine word and its authority, we have fallen into another error, ignoring the scripture as God's word in human words. So, by avoiding the rationalistic, modernistic uh, approach to scriptures, as Sasa describes it, we've fallen off the other side of the horse. Now, having the pure, perfect word of God is awfully convenient, right? Because then it becomes quite easy to ignore all the messy context and setting and assume that God is speaking directly to me. Because it's perfect divine word. So on a lark, I googled the phrase, inspirational Bible verses. First link was to a page called, conveniently enough, inspirational Bible verses. <laughs> Colon, and the subtitle of the page is uh, real, period, powerful, period, timeless, period. Now you can guess where this is going to go. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Oh, man. I have the power now to go to my job this morning, to do what I'm asked to do, and to succeed, and to get that promotion, because God is going to go with me no matter where I go. Now, this happens to occur in Joshua, and it's spoken to Joshua as he's prepared to lead the people of God into the promised land. But, well, so what? You can, if you don't like that one, you can click on some of the links on this side of the page. You can click on Comfort Bible Verses, Confidence Bible Verses, Blessings Bible Verses, and Verses for All Occasions, Bible Verses for Graduation, Babies Bible Verses, Bible Verses for Birthdays, and if you have a hard time getting a date, Dance Bible Verses. <laughs> if you have a big football game, you can click on Sports Verses. For the Lord your God is going with you. He will fight for you against your enemies, and he will give you victory. <laughs> now forget that God is speaking to Israel upon entering the promised land in Deuteronomy, and that the enemies are worshipers of false gods who would corrupt Israel and cause them to be unfaithful to the covenant, and that victory is not putting up more points on the board, but putting people to death. <laughs> but see, the only way to have real, period, powerful, period, timeless, period, verses is if they are perfectly divine and have no human role whatsoever, no human element whatsoever. 
If they are perfectly divine, that is God's pure word and truth, and it does not matter if they were spoken to Joshua, Israel, or that they didn't have birthday parties or graduations or baby showers in Corinth. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and I get to pick the things that I want to do. Now, I'm assuming that this website was not developed by an LCMS Lutheran, though I unfortunately can't guarantee that these days. But it would not, uh, we are guilty of it at times, too. Let me give you one example. Quote, bring in the full tithe. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I do not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing. Ever use that for a stewardship sermon? I heard one two weeks ago on that text in a Lutheran congregation. I have to preach on this text actually in chapel in about three weeks, um, so I'm not sure how to apply that to students. Bringing the full tithe to the chapel and God will forgive your debt or something, I, th- I think is the, <laughs> is the payoff there. But... Now, some of this, to be sure, is laziness, uh, sloppiness, sloppy exegesis, but these are born out of made possible by a view of Scripture that assumes that we have God's pure, perfect, timeless, unbound to this world word of God. Now allow me to give you a theological example, one which will maybe strike a little closer to home and relates more directly to our topic. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's been running across the screen in Water Auditorium, backwards, of course, as we know. And this we use as the decisive proof text for the inspiration and authority of Scripture. The a priori, as Pieper calls it, ultimate and unquestionable statement that everything in this book, well, and the other one too, the Old Testament, uh, is the pure word of God. Okay, Uh, we can use that but only if this passage is a completely divine and not a human passage. For if God said it, then the scriptures are indeed inspired, all of them. All scripture is theopneustos. But if God said it through the Apostle Paul to Timothy, who, as Paul says, from infancy has known the sacred writings, well, it doesn't work so easily. Because when Timothy was an infant, there were no letters of Paul. There were no Gospels yet written, let alone considered authoritative. All scripture in 1 Timothy 3 refers only to what we now, we now call the Old Testament, whatever the exact limits and contours of that was in the 60s, which we're not entirely clear on. In fact, every passage that we use to prove a priori the divine source and authority of the scriptures refers to and only to the Old Testament. John 10.35, the scriptures cannot be broken. Old Testament. Jesus, in fact, he's quoting a specific passage from the Psalter. 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy of scripture comes from the will of man. No prophecy of scripture. Unless these passages dropped out of the sky like the Book of Mormon, or came like water through a pipe as did the Quran, then they say nothing about the source or authority of the New Testament. So we we use passages theologically in a certain way because of, I believe, a false understanding of their nature. We've fallen off one side because we don't consider the other. Now I'm going to skip this paragraph here because it'll 
get me in trouble. On the other side is a denial. Well, okay, I won't. I, I can't say something like that. So a few years back, I was asked to speak at one of these model theological conference things after the Yankee Stadium thing. Now, keep in mind, I'm about, you know, I don't know what I was, 35 years old at the time, and so you're kind of a sacrificial lamb, you know. Nobody knows who I am. And, and I was asked to talk on 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 and uh, uh, eating uh, idol sacrifices and how this applied to Yankee Stadium. Okay. Um, went through the text, and, and nobody threw anything at me. Uh, at the end of the conference time, actually, Joel was there as well. He's one of the presenters. Um, at the end of the conference time, Joel Okamoto. And Joel Leyenbauer, in fact. It was three of us, wasn't it? Um, uh, at the end of the uh, sessions, the, the, the people, the, the pastors, were invited to offer questions, but anonymously, on blanks of paper. So they, you know. <laughs> so, you know, generally pretty positive, good questions. But I remember one, specifically, that said, the gist of it was essentially, you keep saying Paul wrote, Paul wrote, or Paul argues. Okay, I, you know, I talk as if Paul wrote the letter. Uh, and what he said was, you should be saying, God said, God said, God said. Now, I didn't respond to that question because it would have just, can, you know, got me into trouble. But, but think about this. If I could, in order for the scriptures to be authoritative, we have to deny they're from Paul. So I could not talk about Paul or his rhetoric or his flow of argument, or for that matter, the personal example he uses in the entirety of 1 Corinthians 9. And frankly, it borders on the absurd. Does God say we do not have the right to take along a wife? Of course not. Paul says that, and yet it's still the word of God. So we function in our theology, I think, in a kind of uh, uh, artificial way. That, that can't take into account the human nature of these texts. Now, on the other side, of course, is the denial of the divine. And this, I think, we have less problem with. We've been trained in the LCMS to sniff out any hint of playing down the divine source and authority of Scripture. And I'll just cover this briefly. The consequences of accepting only a human side of Scripture and not a divine source and authority is evident in a way that the ELCA has dealt with matters recently, such as uh, homosexuality and clergy issues. Uh, the most recent document, for example, Human Sexuality, Gift, and Trust, adopted by the August 2009 Churchwide Assembly, ignores, doesn't even mention, uh, the two clear New, references, uh, New Testament references in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6. just doesn't even acknowledge that they're there. Uh, as well as any reference to the behavior in the Old Testament. One struggles to find any mention of Scripture, frankly, uh, in the document. Um, they apparently have nothing to say to the topic. Well, why is this? If you go back to a prior essay, which is titled Background Essays on Biblical Texts from a Task Force of the ELCA, uh, here's how they approach it. Quote, these passages speak clearly of, a same, clearly of same gender sexual relationships as inherently prohibited. The relationships themselves are, quote, against nature and contrary to the will of God expressed in creation from the beginning. However, <laughs> other interpreters on reading the texts with care also conclude that the same passages pose challenges. Those in Leviticus seem to be the clearest at the purely descriptive level, but as discussion above has shown, some interpreters question their relevance beyond their time and place. Now notice the two moves. One, all biblical interpretation is contingent on human interpreters, and therefore we cannot derive any authoritative meaning from the texts. 
We have debating interpretations. Who knows which is the right one? Therefore, none of them are right. Second, they have no relevance, quote, beyond their time and place. That is to say, they're so humanly conditioned that they have no divine authority and have no role in this church's discussion of the homosexuality issue. There, they've fallen off the other side of the horse. So how do we avoid a purpose-driven lifestyle of exegesis, but at the same time avoid passing off everything in the scriptures as unclear, opaque, unusable, and irrelevant? Kind of like a seminary professor. <laughs> well, but before I propose an answer to this, I want to go on to my third point, which is that we also must incorporate into our accounting for the authority of scripture the problem of the text and the canon of the scriptures themselves. And my thesis is this. The way we have argued for and taught our congregations about that authority is no longer tenable, given what we know about the formation of the canon and the manuscripts of the New Testament. Again, allow me to start with a quote from Zasa. This written in 1951. It's, it's really striking. Uh, Ron always pointed out to me how he used the word prescient, uh, Sasa was. He foresaw in the 50s that there was going to be a split in the LCMS. I mean, it's kind of prophetic. I mean, okay, let's not push it too far, Ron. But, but, so, so let me give you this quote. In the conflicts between fundamentalism and modernism, our sympathy belongs with those who fight for the truths of the ancient Christian faith. And if we had to choose between the two, we, to, we have no doubt as to where our sympathy would lie. But the sympathy with the fundamentalists dare not hinder us from recognizing that modernism is the natural, legitimate child of fundamentalism, even as nothing seems to happen more swiftly than the conversion of a fundamentalist to extreme modernism, at least among our young people. Sasa wrote this in 1951, and some 44 years later, a young fundamentalist named Bart Ehrman wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. And I'll give you his first-person description of this. If one wants to insist that God inspired the very words of Scripture, what would be the point if we don't have the very words of Scripture? This became a problem for my view of inspiration, for I came to realize that it would have been no more difficult for God to preserve the words of Scripture than it would have been for him to inspire them in the first place. If he wanted his people to have his words... Surely he would have given them to them. The fact that we don't have the words certainly must show, I reasoned, that he did not preserve them for us. And if he did not perform that miracle, there seemed to be no reason to think that he performed the earlier miracle of inspiring those words in the first place. Before this, starting with my born-again experience in high school, through my fundamentalist days at Moody, and on through my evangelical days at Wheaton, my faith had been based completely on a certain view of the Bible as the fully inspired, inerrant word of God. Now I no longer viewed the Bible that way. The Bible began to appear to me to be a very human book. A fundamentalist become modernist in a flash because of the problem of the New Testament. Now, this book by Ehrman, uh, Misquoting Jesus, you've probably come across it at some point, uh, caused a rather large stir, stir in evangelical circles, and among some in the LCMS as well. I got emails all over the place. It was a big hit, New York Times bestseller for religious books. 
Uh, Airman made appearances on both Colbert and Jon Stewart, so you know he was really big time. Uh, just two weeks ago, still, keep in mind this is 2005, two weeks ago I saw another book blurb of someone writing yet another response to misquoting Jesus. I read the description, I won't be following that guy's line of argumentation. Now why is Airman so successful in causing consternation among Bible-believing Christians? Why does having a complete mess of the text and canon of the scriptures cause us no end of problems and even provoke outrage? Now, I would submit to you that it's because our tradition does not have an adequate accounting for the authority of the scriptures. Sorry, I'll take a swipe at the systematicians. We've answered the questions as dogmaticians. Scripture is inspired with reference to 1 Timothy 3, and so we already know, a priori, that it has a divine origin and authority. Quenstedt, for example, in the 17th century argued, quote, although inspiration and divine authority inherit originally in the autographs, these attributes belong to the copies by virtue of their derivation since they were faithfully transcribed from them so that not only the sense but also the words were precisely the same. That is to say, the inspiration of the Spirit guaranteed the authority of the original text, and the copies are very, very, very close to the originals. Problem is, Quenstedt was writing at a time when scarcely anyone looked at copies. There were no Greek New Testaments with critical apparatuses. There were no competing editions. Everybody used Erasmus's Textus Receptus in one form or another. Quenstedt could assume that if there was a problem with the copies, then those problems were kind of insignificant, spelling mistakes, you know, somebody messed up, took a nap, whatever. Okay. Interestingly, still today, I see people defending the authority of the scripture by claiming that the copies are still not a problem. But Robert Preuss notes in his uh, uh, Inspiration of Scripture in 1958 that Quenstedt's statement is rather uninformed. Quote, there is certainly no reason to doubt that he, like Hollitz, was aware of the fact of variant readings among the manuscripts, but the dogmaticians of the 17th century were scarcely informed and were not especially interested in the subject of textual criticism. So if we pretend that's not a problem, then we can stick to our tight formulations. We have a perfect text, and therefore we have a perfect word of God. The two go necessarily together. Some 250 years later, we still find the same argumentation in Pieper's dogmatics. He starts with the assertion that the integrity of the biblical text is assured both a priori, that is, on the basis of passages such as John 8, 31, 32, John 17, 20, um, where Jesus urges his disciples to remain in my word, and also a posteriori, that is, looking backward, that no doctrine, he says, and I emphasize that he states no doctrine rather than the meaning of any individual passage, has been affected by the variant readings. So in the end, according to Pieper, the autographs are inspired and authoritative, and the copies with their variants are not. This assertion is made to preserve inspiration, but are the autographs actually available to us? Pieper doesn't answer the question. Instead, he falls back on the argument that we have, quote, a reliable text, in other words, the authentic doctrine of the apostles and prophets. Notice how he slides. We have an authentic text, that is, the doctrine, teaching, 
of the apostles. Those seem to me to be not necessarily the exact same thing. This is backed up with the statement common among conservative theologians that no doctrine is affected by the variance in the manuscripts. So again, Peeper, compare the newer critical editions. This is the 19, what, 17, 18? With the compare the newer critical editions with the Textus Receptus, and you will be completely cured of the fear that the collection of many thousands of variant readings, which modern textual criticism has recorded, demand a change in a single Christian doctrine. Now, as true as some may think that statement to be, and I will demonstrate shortly that it is in fact not true, all we are left with is a text that gets close enough for doctrine, but we don't necessarily have a text which we consider inspired because only the autographs are inspired. But then is this text that I teach and preach from inspired? Is it authoritative? And what if we find more copies with more variants and pretty soon all our Sedes Doctrinae for a given locus are called into question? The slipperiness of moving back and forth between doctrine and text, autograph and copy, depending on the argument, leads both to confusion and more importantly, uncertainty as to whether or not the text in front of me is authoritative. Now, this is not only Peeper. I'm going to skip over Theodore Engelder and uh, Paul Kretzmann in the 40s and 50s, uh, abiding word essays, uh, uh, Engelder's um, uh, uh, The Scripture Cannot Be Broken. It's the title of his book. Uh, I mean, it actually goes beyond Peeper, but I'll leave that alone uh, for today. So it is uh, Quenstedt and Peeper and Engelder, or rather Peeper who view, uh, people who view scriptural authority in the way that they do, who Ehrman is addressing in his book. And it is those same people, the people in our pews, who have been taught by us, whose faith has been rocked to the core, in many cases, by Ehrman and his manuscripts, and Elaine Pagels and her Gnostic Gospels, and by the Gospel of Judas, and by the Da Vinci Code. To use Asa's metaphor, we have avoided shipwreck on the cliffs of a rationalistic history of religion's understanding of the scripture, only to crash into the rocks of a supernaturalistic, docetic understanding of the scripture. So, what do we know about the formation of the canon and the manuscripts of the New Testament? And can we fit this into our way of talking about the authority of the word of God? Well, fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> Quenchstadt, Pieper, and Engelder all worked with the assumption that there was never really any question about the extent of the canon. That the original text of the scriptures is inspired, and that the copies were not a problem. And you and I, I think, work with the assumption, or maybe the untested hope, that what we have in the BHS and our Nestle text is pretty darn close to the original text. That's a technical term, pretty darn close. <laughs> At least close enough that we don't have to worry about it. That the 66 books we always find in our Bibles, always in the same order, were always there. That is to say, and forgive me if I'm exaggerating, but I'm making a point. I don't think it's by much. It kind of goes like this. Paul wrote a letter to, say, Rome. The Spirit guided him as he did this so that it, when Rome got his letter, it is evident immediately that what they had in their hands was indeed not merely the words of Paul, but the word of God. They took this letter and preserved it, and in their contacts with other churches, discovered that they too had received wonderful, powerful, indeed inspired letters from Paul. They put their best people to work making accurate copies of these because they were so convinced of its authority. 
And soon not only the letters, but also the four Gospels were received and put together into what we now call the Bible sometime in like 60. (laughs) (laughs) Now some of that actually happened. Except everything after Rome got this letter. (laughs) Let me start with the issue of the original text, quote, and inspiration. We conceive of inspiration as a single act whereby the Spirit causes a human author to write down the Word of God so that what leaves the pen of, say, Luke is inspired and therefore authoritative. Perfect. We do this because we live in a print culture where authors write a draft, send it to the publisher, and then it's published. Now, this makes some, may take some time. There's, of course, research involved. But you have writing, and then you have a single final draft that gets duplicated by the printing press in tens of thousands of perfectly identical copies. (coughs) Add the Holy Spirit to the mix, and now you have a way to make the autographs inspired and authoritative. A single action. Add the Holy Spirit, and now you have inspiration and a perfect text. But is this how writing a book took place in the ancient world? One act of writing, one draft, and then a copied edition. Now, we know that this is not the case for writing books in the ancient world. In fact, even recent texts do not have a perfect original. Now, I have some things in here about the Gettysburg Address, which is fascinating. We have uh, two drafts by Lincoln himself prior to the Gettysburg Address and three handmade drafts following the Gettysburg Address, like right afterward that people asked for immediately. Um, uh, None of them agree. Five different original copies of the Gettysburg Address. Which one's original? There's one inscribed on the Lincoln Monument, but it actually doesn't match any of the five manuscripts. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, the one key line is that this nation uh, conceived of liberty. The the main textual variant is this nation under God. Is it in there or is it not? Did he say it? Didn't he? Which one's the original? Well, it's even worse in the ancient world. First, compositions, books, were not written to be sold to be published, there was no publishing industry. Books were written for friends, for benefactors, for patrons, not for the general public. And this will be completely foreign to us. The printed form is not the intended version. For books were not read with the eyes, they were performed. Take a look at Luke, for example. He compiles a narrative, as he says, but he doesn't write an essay. In this age where TV, radio, DVD, and internet, uh, in this ancient age when TV, radio, DVD, and internet do not consume eyeballs, uh, entertainment consisted in hearing. And books were written to be performed. Some perhaps in one sitting, some in, maybe like Luke, in several sittings. Uh, The Magnificat, Simeon's song were not read, they were sung. Maybe by women, actually. (laughs) Anyway, um, after the first performance was over, then several copies would be made. One for the patron, maybe one for close friends, and then that's it. Once the performances occurred and copies were made, the text is completely and entirely out of the hands of the author. Now, his friends or patrons could choose to have additional copies made and passed around, or they may not. Now, keep this in mind in all this. If the author has a performance copy of his text, and then you have the actual performance, and then the post-performance perhaps cleaned up copy, which one is the original? 
the author's focus is on the performance, not on the written text, much like Lincoln in his Gettysburg Address. The point was not the draft, but the address. Right? So to use our theological terminology, which one is inspired? The draft, the performance, the revised version? And if we choose the revised version, which of the three or four copies, all of which inevitably, because they're made by hand, will be different from one another, much like Lincoln's drafts, which of those three or four handmade artifacts is the one that is inspired? Well, I can go through Paul's letters. I'm kind of, out of running out of time. But I'll point out one kind of key problem here. Romans is a classic example. Our manuscript evidence for Romans is very prob problematic. We have two letters forms of Romans, one that ends at chapter 14 and one that ends where we have it today in chapter 16. What's in, probably the case here is that Paul wrote a letter that was intended to be read not only in Rome with all the greetings to individuals and in chapter 15, the, uh, 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 hey, I'm going to come visit you. Uh, please give me money so I can go to Spain, part of it, right? That got sent to Rome. You don't need the personal greetings and the fundraising appeal if you're going to send that copy to, say, Corinth. So you send them the 14-letter form. Now, which one is inspired? You might say the 14-letter form because that's one Paul intended for a wider audience than just the church in Rome, but we use a 16-chapter form. <coughs> My point in all this is that to speak of a single act of inspiration which produces a single normative text and that the single inspired text is clearly distinguishable from the copies is entirely unhistorical. Our dogmaticians have been basing their argumentation on a reconstruction that is not historically defensible. And I'm not trying to impute false motives to the dogmaticians. As far as I can tell, they never considered what the act of writing a letter or a gospel narrative, let alone the Psalter or the Book of the Twelve, would have looked like. Now, I'm going to kind of uh, move ahead a little bit here and just update you a little bit on the current state of the New Testament text. Um, a rather dramatic shift has taken place in the discipline in terms of what goal is trying to be accomplished. If you have your Nestle 26 edition in the preface, Kerr Allant will say that this is in your hands, the original text of the New Testament. Now he's German, okay? You can kind of forgive him, right? You won't find that in the 27th edition. That phrase was taken out. The text is identical from the 26th to the 27th edition. But the editors view it differently. In the 28th edition, which will be coming out rather soon, likely within a year, it kind of keeps being delayed, um, is already different. The text has already been changed from what you have in your 27th edition. You don't know this yet. You can buy it in the bookstore, at least fascicles of it. But it's already different. So in some cases, significantly so, which we don't have time to get into. But the very conception by the editors of what they are constructing is completely different. They now say that they are not attempting at all to reconstruct the original text. That's an impossibility. That's a, a false conception of the transmission of the New Testament, or any ancient writing for that matter. What they now claim to be reconstructing is what they call in German the Ausgangstext or usually translated in English as the initial text. That is, what we can reconstruct based on our manuscripts is the text from which all the copies derived. Now, for Paul's letters, for example, this would not be the letter that Paul sent to Rome. We have no access to that letter apart from 
the 13-letter corpus that was collected by the end of the first century from which all our copies of, the new, of Paul's letters derive. Every manuscript is based on that corpus. You can tell by sequence, you can tell by textual variation, that's where it comes from. Point being, we have no access to what Paul wrote to Rome. We have access only to the edited, well, whoever edited it, uh, edition produced at the end of the first century. Take the Gospels. We have no access to what Luke wrote for Theophilus except from the four Gospel Codex. We can reconstruct that, the Ausgangs text. We cannot reconstruct what Luke wrote. Just based on our evidence, and I think it's fair to say we'll never have it. Now, this is not just critics, you know, trying to dethrone the authority of the Bible. It's simply a recognition of what we are able to accomplish given the state of the text. We can talk all we want about an original text and this being authoritative, but the fact of the matter is, well, apart from some divine miracle which hasn't happened in 2,000 years, we'll never have one. So, if we want to claim that this is the original text, we are making a claim that the people who produce this text do not make. They're not even trying to reproduce that. We can comfort ourselves with our dogmatic formulations based on a single original text and repeat those formulations to our congregations. But soon enough, there will be another Bart Ehrman or Gospel of Judas or History Channel show that will destroy the basis of our argument. And their faith, based as it is at least partly on Scripture, perhaps in place of Christ, is shaken. Certainty is lost because we've instructed them to place their faith in our hypothetical reconstruction, which is not based in history, nor ultimately, and this is the key, on the one who works in history. So my final point. An accounting for the history, I'm sorry, for the authority of the scripture must be grounded in nothing other than the work of Jesus Christ focused in his death and resurrection. Now, you should notice that to this point I haven't talked about Jesus. Right? So, let's try it. Jesus Christ is risen. Hallelujah. All scripture is theopneustos. Oh, good, you didn't respond. <laughs> what is the relationship between those two statements? Is there any? Well, you don't actually find one in our dogmatics books or CT Sarah documents. What Bart Ehrman and people like him is knocking down is the second statement on its own, separated from the first. All scripture is theopneustos. But his method of argumentation knocks that down only if you bracket out the first statement, which Ehrman as a fundamentalist grew up doing, in fact, and which we, I think, too often in our discussions likewise do. Now the second statement, all scripture is theopneustos, is able to be called into question without the first, Christ is risen, because change a word in that statement, and you have the same thing that the Quran says about itself, or the Book of Mormon. We claim that the Bible is the word of God. Islam claims that the Quran is the word of Allah. We claim that the Bible is inspired. The Muslim claims that the words of God came to Muhammad like water goes through a pipe. We can exegete passages to prove that the Bible does not err. The Muslim can exegete passages of the Quran to prove that it does not err. Heck, you don't even need exegetical gymnastics like we sometimes do for our passages. I'll quote the Quran directly. It, the Quran, is an invincible book 
Falsehood does not invade it, neither from before it nor from behind it. That is a priori or a posteriori. <laughs> a revelation from Allah Almighty, he be praised. I mean, that's it. The Bible doesn't even say it that clearly. So if many religions make truth claims about their holy book and can cite passages from divine books that claim divine origin and authority, how do you decide which one is right? It is not the claims, no matter how often we repeat them or how fervently we believe them, that make them true or persuasive. How are, claims, how are our claims persuasive in a pluralistic culture, persuasive to our people? Again, Zasa. Quote, the word of God which is entrusted to the church does not exist in a void, but is proclaimed in the concrete world of humans and people. However, this is a world full of genuine or alleged revelations, a world full of a thousand holy scriptures, which are regarded by their respective adherents as true revelations, but dismissed by their opponents as demonic fraud and soul-destroying error. One cannot urge theology, true theology, without appropriating knowledge of this world and its history, the complete history of which has taken place between God and humanity. As the eternal Son of God was a true historical man without ceasing to be God, so it belongs to the essence of the divine word of revelation that it was spoken by humans in time, proclaimed by human mouths, written by human hands, and is truly human words without ceasing to be God's eternal, infallible, and imperishable word. So what kind of God do you end up with if you have a God who does not involve himself in history or time or humanity, who avoids the messiness of the manuscripts? Well, you end up with a God who stands above and distant from the imperfection of this world. You end up with, in fact, Allah. Allah does not become flesh. He does not enter into this world. He does not sacrifice for himself or his people. He is perfect, and he demands perfection. You do not ask for his love. You simply give him your obedience because he is perfect and holy, and you are not. Or, ironically, you end up with a Gnostic worldview, where the only thing that really matters is the spiritual, and the physical of this world is either avoided or in an American context, indulged, because it doesn't really matter what we do with our bodies. The only thing that will determine my future is my spirituality. Since anything of this world, any text in this world, is merely human, all religions, we are told, lead to the same place, to the same non-worldly spiritual place. Now, I hesitate to put it this way, but since this is a safe place for theological discussion... I see very little difference between what the Lutheran dogmatic tradition focuses on in its view of Scripture and what the Quran does. They both assume the uh, finite is not capable of the infinite of the Reformed tradition, perhaps ironically, which is present obviously in people like Warfield, but ultimately expressed in people like Bart and Boltmann, as well as underlying Islam and Gnosticism. So what is generally Lutheran, creedal, scriptural in our way of talking about the authority of scripture. Now again, I'll turn to Zasa, and actually Zasa's use of a line from Luther's bondage of the will, which he turned to again and again. Take Christ out of the scriptures, and what more will you find in them? Jesus is that around which the scriptures 
cohere. Not that Jesus is found in a bunch of passages, passages sprinkled here and there throughout the Bible, but that if you take the brick out, the whole building crumbles. Or to use Jesus' own analogy, the cornerstone that holds up the entire building. It has no meaning if Christ is not that around which it coheres. And where Christ is, now we have finally the Holy Spirit. And where the Holy Spirit is, again, Luther, there is Christ. How do I know that it is inspired? Well, I can offer several possible explanations, several rationalized ways of talking about it. But the decisive way is to connect it to the work of Jesus Christ. That is why the Quran is not the word of God, because Allah has not acted in history except to speak. All you have is Muhammad and Allah's word. Call it inspired, call it perfect. It's not word of God. It is why the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas is not word of God, because all of them take you out of history to gods who have no power to change history. But God, the Father who raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, has acted in history, decisively. And this is precisely where the New Testament actually locates its authority. Not in its perfection, not in its being inspired, but on an event. The good news that I announced to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, through which you are also saved, by this word that we announced to you, if you hold fast, unless you, uh, unless you uh, believed uselessly. For I passed on to you as of first importance that which you also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose from the dead on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, the twelve, to more than five hundred, to James, the apostles, and last of all to Paul. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Why is Paul's word true? Because it preaches a God who sent Christ, who was raised from the dead, to change history. So on what do we stand? What was passed down and received by us? A message, good news about what Jesus did. He died for our sins, was put into a tomb, and he came out alive again three days later, and he appeared again and again and again in this world. Most of this, you notice, sounds a lot like kind of the creed, which is kind of handy. You see, Jesus did something in history. He is not separate from apart from history, and his working in the world is part and parcel of history. So it is not surprising, nor embarrassing, nor a problem for God that his word participates in history. This is exactly how God works. It's what makes him, well, God. God to us. You see, there is death and resurrection in 1 Corinthians explicitly. There's death and resurrection in Mark explicitly. There's death and resurrection even in the Old Testament implicitly. Notice that the phrase, Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that Christ will die and on the third day rise. Never says that in any proof passage. Yet Paul is able to say that that's in the scriptures. The Old Testament coheres around the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are no words of God in the Old Testament to say that. 
Yet Paul is able to claim that this historical event, which people saw with their own eyes, is foreseen in the words of the Old Testament. So the resurrection is not just a logically event, a prior event to the scriptures. Jesus rose from the dead and then they wrote about it. It's logically prior. But, if Jesus, uh, but it's also a theologically necessary event to the scriptures. If Jesus had not risen, these words, no matter their source, could not give life. Without the resurrection of Jesus, even the Bible itself would be nothing more than the Quran or the Book of Mormon, a book with claims of a divine source, which you simply have to accept because of the claims it makes about itself, outside of this world, of course, because it does not participate in the imperfections of this world. But Christ Jesus has risen from the dead, the first fruits. He rises with a body, a soma, that can be recognized, that can start a fire on a beach, that can eat a piece of broiled fish, that he can digest it for Pete's sake, with his resurrected intestines. His hands and feet still have holes that can be seen and touched if necessary. Oh yes, perfected, returning to the Father, appearing suddenly from nowhere, passing through walls, but still inevitably and necessarily, and still today, human, physical. Now what does it say about bodies, about things that are human, about the things in this world? You see, the infinite, I'm sorry, the finite is indeed capable of the infinite. God is not lowered by becoming human. He is not diminished by coming into the world. He's not corrupted by participating in the human realm, but he restores it to his purposes. And this was not obvious to everyone, of course. In Jesus' own day, some people said, look, you're a lunatic. You're possessed by Beelzebub. It's not obvious. It's not apparent. We don't have divine revelations that everybody believed all of a sudden. And it's the same with his word. It comes to us not as we want it to be, but participating in our time and in our world. What of the Bible? What of all those manuscripts? What of the original text? Well, I think this gives us a certain freedom to acknowledge that God does indeed work in history, and maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe history is kind of sanctified, and we can talk about it, even in terms of the authority of the Scripture. So, for example, if you want to take Mark 16, 9 through 20 away from me, I can live with that. If you want to take the woman caught in adultery away from me, I can live with that. You want to tell me that Elizabeth sang the Magnificat, not Mary? I can live with that. You want to argue that Jesus was angry and not compassionate, that Aaron spends chapters on in Mark 141? I can live with that. In fact, I agree. If you want to rip Romans 15 and 16 out of my Bible, I can live with that. You want Hebrews, James, Revelation torn out too, like Luther did? I could live with that. You want to force me to use minuscule manuscripts in the Byzantine text? Okay, I could live with that. You want me to use only P46? I could live with that. You want me to use W with its weird endings? I could live with that. Give me only the Codex Bernarianus, this hat copy from the 9th century by somebody who didn't even know Greek, the most poorly copied, misspelled, error-filled manuscript ever produced? I, I could live with that. In fact, I kind of like that manuscript. <laughs> now, I could live without, with or without any of those because even these poorly copied, copied, corrupted by people, edited, to use Luther's words, preach Christ. And if they preach Christ, they are of the Spirit. For preaching Christ is the Spirit's work. And if they preach Christ, they are apostolic. For the apostle can speak nothing other than what he has been sent to speak. So apostles, no matter who they are, even one who has been aborted and yet lived like Paul, who once persecuted the church, can preach the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I can live without a 
perfect Bible. But I cannot live without God raising Jesus from the dead, which is revealed in this very imperfect book. On the other hand, forced me to read only the Gospel of Thomas, I cannot live, literally, with that. Or the Quran, or the Book of Mormon, I cannot live, quite literally, on the last day, with that. Not only because they are not inerrant or perfect, or even because they are human, but because there is no gospel. There is no new life in Christ. And so we do not flee from history because God acted in history. We do not fear the taint of the human which would corrupt the divine because God chooses to reveal himself in the messiness of humanity. How did we end up with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? We actually have no idea. This doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit dropped them out of the sky. But in space and time, writing were produced by those who saw and heard and were used by those who saw and heard this resurrection. Copies were made by those who saw and heard those before them. Sometimes good copies, sometimes bad copies. But even the bad ones still testified to what those people in that community knew to have happened. And in hearing those scriptures generation after generation in Greek and Latin, in Syriac, in Coptic, in Slavonic, in German, in English, in Spanish, and into thousands of languages, sometimes poorly translated, sometimes translated well, sometimes based on bad copies, some based, sometimes based on good ones. In every generation, that word has announced again and again what God has done in history and will do in history and was in fact at that very moment doing in history, burying people into his death through baptism in order that they rise to new life hearing again and again this word and called by what that word to live as his people, awaiting his restoration on the final day of history. So, finally, from Sass's last published article on the topic, 1966, in the uh, uh, Kirchenblatt. It is only by receiving the Bible from God's hand as his word, as it is, and not by trying to make it what our reason expects of a divine book, that we will be in a position to believe and understand it as the book of eternal truth. That's not resignation. That's not throwing up his hands at the end of his life. To receive the Bible from God's hand as his word as it is with all the messiness of its writing and gathering into canon and copying is not capitulation to the skeptics. It is a statement of confidence that here, even in this text, God does his work here in my space and in my time, even this word, which makes me his. Sorry for uh, running on. Um, we'll leave it at that.